We'll be reading in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles from the back, it's on page um, 1014. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. And as we read, please remember we're reading God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thank you. You may have a seat. Right. Well, we're kicking off this new series today, First uh, Peter. It's going to take us 15 weeks, basically now through really about the end of the year, about Christmas time. We'll go verse by verse through this series. And I'm looking forward to just getting back into a book of the Bible and studying it. I hope you'll uh, join me in that process. I hope you'll be here um, as often as you can be uh, in that. And I also hope you'll get this uh, study guide book. This is a book that we, uh, myself and one of our other pastors, wrote that basically has a bunch of questions that will help you dive deeper into this, uh, into this book. You could study in advance of coming or afterwards, but there's personal questions you could look at. There's uh, group discussion questions for your redemption communities, and uh, there's articles and just all sorts of stuff to help you dig deeper, and so we wanted to make that available for you. Um, the, the thing that I wanted to look at today as we begin this book is the power of identity. I was listening to a guy who's a leader that I respect, and he was talking about leadership, and he was talking this week about um, how leaders can motivate people. And if you're in any kind of leadership role uh, in your home or in your business or with a team or as a coach or whatever, you know the importance of motivating people. And he talked about these various levels of motivation. And he said the, the most sort of base level motivation, the lowest form of motivation is guilt and shame and fear, right? And all of us have had some sort of experience where someone has motivated us that way. And that motivation works for a moment, but it doesn't really last and it's not really all that compelling. Uh, a little bit above that would be duty and responsibility and, you know, this is what you should do because it's the right thing and, and that sort of deal. And, and I'm not going to go through all the different levels that he talked about, but what he talked about was that the most motivating thing that a leader can tap into is identity. This is who we are. This is who you are. This is what it means to be a blank. 
And so as Peter begins this book in which he's going to call the people he's writing to to stand firm in the faith, he's trying to motivate them to stand firm, he begins by looking at identity. Identity is a powerful thing. Uh, My father-in-law is here today, and one of the things that he did with Molly a number of times growing up is he would drop her off different places. Uh, He would say to her, and her her maiden name is Bush, uh, like the beer, not the president, S-C-H. He would say to her, Molly, remember, you're a bush. Now, the rest of you, that wouldn't mean anything to you because you're not a bush. You don't have any idea what that's about. But for her, that meant like you're, you're representing something. You, it, it means something to be a bush. We always tap into identity, right? I heard this at the uh, political conventions. I listened to speeches from the Republicans and speeches from the Democrats. And in every case, they appealed to what it means to be American, This is who we are as Americans. And so the Republicans are saying, as Americans, we love freedom. And the Democrats are saying, as, as, as Americans, we love people. And, and whether you agree with the, the, the different identities and the different nuances, all of them, in order to motivate, are appealing to, this is what it means to be American. I experienced this as a, as a high school baseball player. I was part of a, a high school program that the, the two years prior to me joining the varsity team had won the state championship. And then by God's grace, we were able to win it the two years I was on the varsity team. And, but all through that, there was this constant sense of, we're the Cherry Creek Bruins. An identity of greatness. And excellence has been established, right? And it made everyone else sick and, and everyone else hated Cherry Creek. But, but if you were part of Cherry Creek, there was this identity that you shared. And it was powerful and it was motivating. Identity is crucial. And identity is especially crucial when things get hard. Because most of the time, we sort of base our identity on what other people think about us or on how circumstances are going or on what I do for a living or all those different things. And when that stuff starts to crumble, we begin to ask, who am I really? Who am I? What, what is my life built on? If, if, I'm, if my health is failing and if my family relationships are broken, and if my job is non-existent or not going where I want, or I'm not making the kind of money I used to, or who am I? Some of you are here today because you're asking that question. Something's happened in your life, and you've started to go, i got to figure some things out. For those of you who aren't in that sort of crisis point, though, this is critical. Because the time will come when your circumstances will get difficult. The time will come when suffering happens. And Peter's going to talk about that throughout this book. He's going to talk about the suffering that comes from authority, from government. He's going to talk about difficulty in marriage. He's going to talk about uh, suffering that happens for your faith. He's going to talk about suffering that happens because you were just an idiot. He's going to talk about all kinds of suffering and all kinds of difficulty. And the reality is if you don't get what he talks about today who you are, what your identity is, you won't feel like you have much to stand on when the day of suffering happens. So that's where we're looking at today is the power of identity. Let's look a bit just at at the book. Let's get into it. We're going to go just sort of verse by verse uh, through this, uh, through verses 1 through 9. And uh, Peter gives us some introduction into the background, uh, just even with the first verse. Here's what he says. Peter, an apostle 
of Jesus Christ. So that tells us who the letter is written by. In our day, when we write a letter, we, we put our name at the end. In these days, you'd put it at the beginning. And so he begins with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is the man that's writing us this letter? Well, we learned that. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This means he was specifically set apart by Jesus, one of the 12 disciples. And Peter wasn't just one of the 12. Peter was the most prominent of all the disciples, right? Jesus had uh, 70 or more people that he invested in, generally speaking. Then he had 12 that he invested in as apostles. And within that, he had three Three that got to come and pray for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three that got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Three that got to go and see him raise a little girl from the dead. And one of those three was Peter. Peter had a front row seat to everything that Jesus said and did. But Peter had a little bit of a problem. He had a foot-shaped mouth. And his philosophy, at least as you read about it in the Gospels, was ready, fire, aim. Right? Any of you like that? Right? Especially with your words, right? You say something and then instantly you're trying to like reach back and grab it and, and you just haven't thought about it. And so Peter gets a lot of attention, a lot of negative attention, especially when you read the Gospel stories. He seems like just kind of a doofus. Um, he's always saying the wrong thing. In fact, Peter, the the author of this book of Scripture that we're going to study, do you know what Jesus called him one time? Jesus called him something horrible one time. There was this time when Jesus and his disciples were gathered, and Jesus asked them, hey, who does everyone say that I am? And they said, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter, speaking for the group, said, You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. True or false? True. Ding! Nailed it. And, and Jesus says, only, the, only my Father could have revealed that to you. And on that confession, I'm going to build my church. Everything about my church for all of history is going to be built on that confession that I am the Son of God. And then P- Jesus goes on to say, But I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and then I'm going to be raised again. And, and Peter, who just moments before had said, you're the son of God, says, Jesus, no way. Peter rebukes Jesus, right? Like that's dumb idea, right? Ready, fire, aim, right? And, and you know what Jesus called them? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's whose book we're studying. Not Satan's. See, because Peter had a remarkable transformation, a remarkable turnaround. So that wasn't his only failure when Jesus was being betrayed and tried. And Peter had said, if everyone else leaves, I never will. And then he's the one who denies Jesus three times. Once where he's warming his hands by a fire and there's a young girl there. And she says, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, never seen him. This Peter has such a transformation. Jesus restores him. There's this great scene in the end of the book of John where Peter had denied Jesus three times and Jesus gives him three opportunities to affirm his love for Jesus. And Peter is the one that ends up leading the church, preaching the message in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people come to faith. So if we're going to look at someone that understands grace, We've got to look at someone like Peter. Incredible 
transformation and, and lots to learn from him. Who's this letter to? Well, he says that in verse 1 as well. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is a letter written to Christians. Uh, It's a letter written to Christians who are described as exiles. And uh, these Christians are are spread throughout Asia Minor. Asia Minor would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, it's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles that he writes to. And then the theme of the book. What's the theme here? Well, I've already alluded to it, but I want to show it to you in the text. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 12. 1 Peter 5:12. It's always helpful when an author just tells you, here's, here's why I wrote this. Uh, he's giving some final greetings, saying, I, um, here's what he says, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. He's saying... I, I sent this letter. Uh, Sylvanus brought it to you. But what's, here's what the letter says. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. This letter is written to exhort and declare that we would stand firm in the true grace of God. That's what this is for. This book is about helping you see what is true. And stand firm in it, especially when difficulty comes. And so that's what uh, is coming throughout the rest of this book. There's going to be a lot of help for us as we think through what it is to suffer, what it is to face trials and hardship and difficulty. But if we're ever going to do that, we have to understand this true grace of God and what it says about who we are. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time here is I just want to go through this passage and I want to show you 11 things... That, that this passage says God's people are. Uh, this is our identity as the people of God. Now, if you're here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're exploring, maybe you're returning, maybe you're kind of checking things out, so glad you're here. But you would, if you said by your own admission, I'm not a follower of Christ, the things we're going to look at today are not yet true of you. Now, did you catch the key word there? Yet. I hope that you'll look at these and that you'll see who Christ is and you'll go, I I want that to be true of me and that you'll place your faith in him. For those of you who are Christians, this will be important for you to go, this is who I am. And and I'll tell you this, I, I would much, I would always much rather preach a sermon that has one point. Like God is great, so I don't need to be in control. Wasn't that easy to remember? I mean, that's just easier to preach. It's easy to remember. But, but But here we have a chunk of Scripture where I can't dumb all this down to just one point. In fact, this is remarkable. Uh, Verses 3 through 12 in the original language is one sentence. One giant run-on sentence. Now, Peter was a fisherman, so we can't get on him too hard about his grammar. But one long run-on sentence. And what that communicates is Peter's excited about a lot of different things. And so the reason I'm not going to reduce this to just one point, but I'm going to give you 11 points of who you are in Christ, is actually because I want you to feel the overwhelming nature of this kind of grace. I want you to be wowed and overwhelmed and and kind of fire-hosed by who God says you are. So let's get into it. What is our identity You know, there's not a command in verses 1 through 12. The rest of the book has lots of commands. Do this, don't do that. But but there's just statements of fact in this section. So who are we? What's our identity? Eleven 
11 things that this passage says we are for in Christ. First, we're exiles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. We're exiles. Now, it could be in this particular case that the people Peter's writing to have been scattered from Rome or scattered from some particular place. Uh, More likely, it seems that Peter is writing and calling them exiles, trying to remind them that their identity is that this earth is not their home. This earth is not their home. They're just passing through. That's what Peter says when he calls them exiles. The word exile means a stranger. It means a foreigner. It means someone who doesn't have citizenship in a particular country. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Uh, It says this, talking about those who have faith in Christ. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This earth is not your home. And, and for the uh, recipients of, of Peter's letter, that was especially felt. Because for us today, Christianity is a major world religion, right? It's, it's one of a few major world religions. If you were to ask the people in this day, what are the major world religions, there's no chance they'd say Christianity. Christianity was a minor, small but growing sect that was thought of as strange, thought of as sort of an offshoot of Judaism. No one was exactly sure what it was. They all knew it was kind of about this resurrected Jesus guy. So a lot of persecution comes. And so these people would have heard this and said, yes, I feel like an exile. I I feel like an outsider. I feel like a stranger. And what Peter is saying is, yes, you are. See, some of us, the way we live is if this is our home. Right? And, and, and so what matters is how much we can achieve here. And what matters is how much we can attain here. And what matters is who knows and respects us here. Because all we think about is, is here, as if the earth was our home. And as a result, when all of that stuff is threatened, when all of that stuff is torn apart, we're devastated. Peter says, embrace the reality. You're in exile. This earth is not your home. So horizontally, he's saying, expect to feel ostracized. Expect to feel on the outside. But there's another thing you are, and this is an incredible blessing. You're elect. You're chosen. You're elect. You're chosen. See verse 1? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Right. So the world may see you as an outsider, as an outcast, But God sees you as elect. That word means chosen. Perhaps your translation even translated that way. A chosen exile. This was not random. This was not uh, by anything other than God's choosing you. God's setting His love upon you. God electing you. Now, I know that for some of you, that idea of election and of predestination and of choosing is a, is a, it's an uncomfortable subject, and you go, I got, all, I got way more questions than answers, and I don't know how I feel about this. And so, listen, I, I don't want what I say today to be like the end of the conversation. If this raises questions for you, talk with me, talk with some of our leaders. We would love to do that. But you need to know, if you want to get rid of the idea of election, you need to get out scissors, and you need to cut it out of the page. 
Because it's there. And the Bible talks about it a lot. And here's basically what it is. It's the idea that if you love God, you love God because He first loved you. And here's one of the greatest evidences that, that this is true. is If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you thank God for your salvation, don't you? You say, God, God, thank you that, that you love me so much. Well, if, if you just instinctively know it was his gift. And you pray for other people to come to faith. Well, why would you pray for them unless, if God can't, can't choose them? And so this is an incredible identity. This is the identity of the people of Israel, right? There's all kinds of places where the people of Israel are called God's chosen people. And God tells them repeatedly, listen, I didn't choose you because you were the best. I chose you uh, actually because you had some issues. I could make a greater name for myself choosing you because you were a wreck. And that's the idea of election. It's a powerful thing. I I was uh, thinking about this and and it didn't come out very well with my kids the other day. Um, I was telling them how much I love them and how thankful I am that God gave me them. You know, like of all the kids that God chose me to have them and how wonderful that is. And then I was trying to make a point and it didn't go so great, about how, how a special adoption is. I was saying, you know, I just got lucky that I got you. But if we were to ever adopt somebody, I would choose them. And that would be really cool because I would have chosen them. And they're like, is this a compliment? And they're thinking, what are you talking, you know? Do, do you get what I'm saying? Don't, don't refine it before you have that conversation. But I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so excited about all the adoption, all the foster care, all the orphan care that happens in our church. I think it is so wonderful. I think it's such a reflection of God's heart and of the gospel, and I love it. And, and I don't know whether we will ever adopt. It's something I pray and think about. But one of the most beautiful ideas I have about it is, is that you go and you choose this child, not because of how great they are, but in spite of their issues and their concerns and those that haven't taken care of them in the past. And I just think it's such a wonderful picture of God's grace. And what Peter's saying, he's saying, listen, you might be ostracized horizontally, but vertically, you're chosen. You're loved. Here's the description of this election. It's in verse 2. Those who are elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So what Peter here is saying, he's saying that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all been involved in your election, in your being chosen. The Father has done this according to His foreknowledge. And Now this word foreknowledge is the idea of, of before time making a choice of of setting your love upon somebody we often mix it up and we think about foreknowledge as like knowing the future right so we think about it as though god looked down the quarters of time and he saw those who would believe in him and then he chose them well that's not really what the word means and let me show this to you if you go to first peter one go to verse 20 this same word is used to describe Jesus. 
So he's talking about Jesus, whose blood would uh, ransom them. And in verse 20, he says, He was foreknown, that's Jesus. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. So what this is saying is that God always knew before the foundation of the world that he would send Jesus. This was part of his predetermined plan. Okay? So that doesn't mean that he looked down and went, oh wow, this guy named Jesus showed up. No, this was, this was God's plan. And if God's plan was to send Jesus in the same way God's plan was to send Jesus to save specific people and to save all who would ever trust in him, who would ever come to him in faith, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, or by the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification means set apart as holy. So the Father makes this, this, this he in his foreknowledge, then the Spirit joins and sets a person apart. Right? When, when you come to faith in Christ, you're given the Spirit. You're set apart with the Holy Spirit. For, why? Why? What's the point of all this? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. The goal of all of this is that you would be washed with the blood of Christ, obeying Christ. This is actually covenant language that Peter is drawing on. Peter is saying, it, before time began, God in His love and mercy set His love upon you to enter into His covenant with His Son. And so take a look at this covenant. This is, I think, a direct reference that he's making back to uh, when Moses instituted a covenant with the people of Israel. Right? Because look at what Peter says. He says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Obedience and sprinkling. And we get this idea in Exodus 24. It says, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, did that happen? People of Israel did everything? No. Was this wrong of them to say that? This arrogant or bold or... I don't think so. If you love the Lord, you want to obey Him. And so we sing songs like, Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Who you love, I'll love. I'll follow you. Right? We make commitments like that. That's perfectly appropriate, but we can't do it. So Moses took the blood and threw it on the people as part of making the covenant and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So they say, we'll obey. And so, G- so Moses spr- splatters them with blood. Th- this is the significance of that covenant. And what Peter is saying is, listen, you've been chosen to be part of a better covenant. You've been chosen to be part of obedience to Christ. And when you fail in that, you're covered with His blood. Not the blood of a bull or of a goat, something that can never take away sin, but the precious blood of Jesus. So you were, you're exiles in this world, but you're chosen to be part of God's family. And that really leads us to the third thing. Number three, we're children of God. God here twice is called the Father. He's our Father. In verse 2, He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so by faith, we are, we are sons and daughters of God. He is our Father. What a rich privilege it is to be His children. Number four, we're born again. Paul, or, or I'm sorry, Peter says this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to God! 
Blessed be God. God is wonderful. Well, Peter, why? Why are you so excited? He says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise to God. According to His great mercy. Right? See, if you get... Oh, well, gosh, why would God choose one or not? We don't know. It's just according to His mercy. According to God's great mercy, He's caused us to be born again. Now, we hear the word born again, and we've heard that a bunch of times, right? And uh, it's usually with a sneer. Remember... Uh, being in Kansas City and sitting in a McDonald's and talking with a guy about the Lord. And he said, are you one of them born-agains? I make mincemeat out of born-agains. I said, yeah, I'm a born-again, right? And, and there's this sort of fear in culture of, are you one of those born-again Christians? You know there's no other kind? There, there, there really is no other kind. See, the, the gospel doesn't come to just mildly reform you. The gospel comes to bring death and resurrection into your life. And that's what born again means. It means that God sees you dead in your trespasses and sin. And in His great mercy, He brings you to life. Right? See, we are all like Lazarus. Lazarus was the person in the gospels who died. And Jesus waited a few days and He showed up. And, and then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. That's us. Born again made alive again. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Do you have new life in Christ? That's who you are. You are not who you used to be. You are not who your old high school friends thought you were. You're new in Christ. You're born again. We're also hopeful. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope. There is real hope. There is lasting hope. There is living hope. Anything else we would hope in fails and decays and dies, right? So I uh, have experienced that this, this weekend. Um, this is a big weekend, right? You had college football Saturday yesterday. NFL starts today. Broncos play tonight. That's a big game. Uh, Monday night football. Well, the other day, our, our direct TV box dies. And um, that's like threat level midnight. I mean, <laughs> something has to be done. So I call them and tell them, and they say, okay, well, we'll ship you out a replacement, and it's supposed to come Saturday, and so I'm, I'm getting pretty antsy, right, yesterday, like, when's this thing going to come? And so I call them up and go, hey, can I get a tracking number? And they go, oh, well, we haven't actually ordered it. And it's like, no, right? And I'm going, can I just pick one up somewhere? Can I, nope, we got to send it to you. And, and I had some hope put in that deal. And, and you, could ask, I mean, you could ask Molly and my family to my shame. I, I was kind of a puke after that. Like it disproportionately upset me, right? It's just not important, right? But I was kind of depressed and kind of down and kind of angry. And, and that's how everything is when you put your hope in stuff that doesn't last. But we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. 
Jesus is alive. Yes, he died, but he rose again. And so our hope is a sure hope. And it's a, it's a hope that we have an inheritance coming. Why? Because not only are we hopeful, but number six, we are heirs. We are heirs. We are children who are receiving an inheritance. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's saying, God in His great mercy has caused you to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that lasts. You're an heir. Only heirs, only children receive an inheritance. Well, what is this inheritance like? Well, look at it. It's imperishable. That means it's untouched by death. It's undefiled, meaning it's unstained by evil. It's pure. It's unfading, meaning it's unimpaired by time. Right? Everything else, everything else we would hope in is decaying, right? The hard drive in my DVR is dead. Instantly, this, I think, makes... Those of you who are familiar with Scripture think of Jesus talking in Matthew 6 where he says, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying even the way that we use our money should reflect that this earth is not our home. Everything in here is is fading. It's dying. It's breaking. Right? The, The gadget that you are most excited about right now is going to end up in a dump. And someday the iPhone 84 will come out. And it'll be in a dump too, okay? I mean, that, that's just... But, but this is lasting. What you have with Christ is lasting. You have a relationship with Him that's lasting. It's a hope that lasts. It can't be destroyed. It's secure. And you are secure. And that's number seven. This is our identity in Christ. We're secure. We're exiles. We're chosen. We're children of God. We're born again. We're hopeful. We're heirs. And we're secure. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power, uh, if you're a follower of Christ, is guarding you. It's protecting you. This word is the idea of a, of a military guard standing attention. Uh, or It's also used with the idea of a prisoner, right? So think about what a prison guard is supposed to do. What is a prison guard guarding against? Two things, really, right? One, he's guarding against the escape of the prisoner. Right? The prisoner might get away, and he has to keep that from happening. He's also guarding, in a sense, trying to protect the prisoner from any outside attack, from another prisoner attacking or something like that, right? And what this is saying is that God guards us meaning we can't get away from him. So you go, is that good news? Yes! Yes, that's great news. You can't get away. He loves you so much, he won't let you go. Right? And even when we run, his arm is long enough to catch us and bring us back. He guards us and he also protects us, which means that any assault, any suffering, any difficulty that comes in has to go through him first. 
So when we suffer, we know it's not because God is against us or God is punishing us, but because God in His wisdom has allowed this to filter through because it's good for us in that moment. He guards us. We're secure. But we suffer. Sometimes God does allow things through that hurt. Trials. It says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of joy to be had because in Christ you're, you're in exile. This isn't your home. You're chosen. You're a child of God. You're born again. You're hopeful. You're an heir. You're secure. But, but in the midst of that, he says in verse 6, you've been grieved by various trials. The word various means multicolored, multifaceted, right? He has all kinds of things in mind here. He has in mind persecution for your faith. He has in mind uh, the death of a loved one or the diagnosis that your body is breaking down and you're sick. Uh, The wayward child, the broken relationship, on and on and on and on. We all have various trials. Multicolored. And they're grievous. They hurt. They're painful. They... uh, We don't just flippantly go, well, okay. We're really suffering. We'll talk more about the purpose of suffering throughout this book because it's a big part of the theme. But what he lets us know here is that part of the suffering, part of the trials, what it does is it purifies and reveals the genuine character of our faith. He says that our faith is like gold, which when you want to purify gold, you you heat it up to the point where impurities rise to the surface. It's called dross, and you scrape it away. And he's saying that trials provide the furnace that heats our faith up and reveals what's really there. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It's about revealing your faith. And so this is the ninth thing, is that we're believing people. We're people of faith. And Peter here is wanting to encourage us in our faith. And so so look at verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now remember, Peter had seen Him. He'd seen Him at His best. And he'd seen Him at His worst. And he'd seen Him in all these places. And there's got to be this sense in Peter that he's just marveling that all these people believe in Him and they never saw Him. He's impressed. You can, you can just tell how impressed he is. He says, though, though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. And you, you don't even see Him now. And you, you believe in Him. You trust Him takes a lot of faith to believe in something you can't see. Peter knows that. He says, be encouraged. That's that's the nature of what it is to be a follower of Christ. We're believing people, and we're also rejoicing people. We're rejoicing. He talks about this twice in verse 6 and in verse 8. Rejoicing is a key feature of what it is to be a follower of Christ. Uh, Just notice sort of the structure of how he says this. He says, you rejoice... And then there's three things that might keep you from rejoicing. 
but, but Peter says, because you're secure in Christ, because you're chosen by God, because you've experienced His mercy, because you have a living hope, these things don't deter you, right? You still rejoice, though you're facing trials, though you haven't seen Him, though you don't see Him now. And despite all of that, because of God's great mercy, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where there's been in you a joy in God that you just... ah, I just can't even describe it. This is who we are. We're people of joy. And finally, we're people who are saved. People who are saved. The word saved, the word salvation means rescue. It means deliverance. Specifically, deliverance from, from the wrath of God's punishment against our sin. We are saved, it says in verse 9. We obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. You're saved if you're a follower of Christ. You're saved from God's wrath. You're saved from God's anger. You're saved from an eternity apart from Him. Are you saved from trials? Nope. Saved from pain? No. but you're saved to a new life, born again to a living hope through a risen Savior. This is who you are if you're a follower of Christ. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is who you could be if you would trust Him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. This can be yours. Exiles, chosen, children of God, born again, hopeful, Heirs, secure, suffering, believing, rejoicing, saved. Is that the foundation that you are standing on? Is that the identity that you embrace? When you get up in the morning, is that who you fundamentally think about yourself being? I'm in Christ. I have Him. He's enough. I hope that it is. Because if it isn't, as this book will show us, the time will come when everything will attack that and whatever foundation you're standing on will be revealed. Makes me think of the hymn we sang last week. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I hope you're standing on Christ. I hope if you're not today that you will begin to trust Him. This is who we are in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the precious promises from Your Word, for these amazing declarations of truth about who we are. Give us faith to believe them. Give us hope, especially when things feel hopeless. How do we pray for that? In Jesus' great name. Amen.